I think reality does bite. But I think what I see around me that's really pervasive in our culture, which is what I call magical thinking, a term I have borrowed, is even worse. Let's look at reality. Let's bring you some content that is meaningful, truthful, as much as we don't want to face it and address these issues because there is a solution for everything. There's no magic. Everything is hard work, but there is a solution. And we're hoping that this show brings you some of that content so you can make better, well-informed decisions and have an understanding of how addiction fits into our social milieu and what we can all do about it together as a culture, as a nation, as a society. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, this is Reality Bites with Dr. B. This is actually our first episode, and I've uh, invited Dr. Bob here we're getting off to a little bit of a rocky start and because we were hoping that this is sort of an organic thing and it takes the direction it does take, we didn't have anything prepared. But we're off to a rocky start because we had a bad day. We just started off our YouTube channel and we just realized we got kicked off and we don't know why. So that's kind of put me in a bad mood, but hopefully Dr. Bob comes up with some stuff that we can discuss today and I'll let him actually do some introductions here. Okay, good. Thanks for having me, Dr. B. I'm happy to be here. My background's in clinical psychology. Dr. B is a physician. And uh, most of my work in addiction recovery for the last 40 years has been looking at addiction from a psychological perspective. And I'm still heavily, well, I'm completely involved in that. Right now, that's all that I do. And Dr. B, your background is in emergency medicine and addiction from a biomedical perspective. I would assume that that's primary for you. But one of the things that interests me most about being here with you, which is a rare uh, treat for me, is that Dr. B is extremely literate in looking at the social, the cultural, the political, the economic context for addiction. I'm very interested in that topic, and I don't get nearly enough chance to kind of talk into that with a kindred spirit, and I feel that deeply with you. And so I'm here uh, to go where we go, but I care a lot about that. So if I can make a vote, it would be that we talk into some of that context as well. It's highly relevant and rarely discussed. Great. Uh... I couldn't agree more, and you are right. I am very interested in that. And just as a platform for us to take off, uh, given my hesitation that we just got kicked off of yeah. YouTube, and I'm not sure why. Uh, that being said, my interest uh, is as such. Uh, obviously, I look at addiction as a disease, yeah. uh, and I like the disease model. Yeah. Not because that has any truth status, but the truth status for me is uh, as such. Uh, I can use that model and I can predict yeah. whether it's I use medication to treat or the outcomes. And so that is of high utility when you're trying to, whether it's you're trying to prevent further illness or you're trying to prevent death. That being said, <clears throat> I'm well versed and immersed in that and I use it every day. Mm -hmm. But as time went on and as I have, uh, I, I enjoy different things. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a psychologist like yourself. I am not a social theorist. I don't know about public policy. I do know quite a bit about public health. But as time went on, and as I was sort of looking at the world around me, as I like to think I have my whole life, uh, and uh, imposed some sort of formal study of that world to understand it, I started to see that addiction really fits in the context of a sociological, psychosocial and sociological really description. And to that extent, one can predict outcomes and 
make a commentary or criticism mm -hmm. of what addiction is in that context. So, uh, to put it more concretely, I find it a manifestation of our greater social pathologies, if that makes sense. It says, for example, I, I agree completely with your premise. What's one example of a pathology that's a global pathology that manifests uh, personally in terms of a disease process like addiction? What would be one example? So if actually that's a great question if I understand it correctly. So for example, even if we went to what we really consider disease, mm -hmm. looking at it from a social perspective yeah, yeah, explains yeah. a lot. Yeah. Okay, diabetes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, we can say this. If I take a group of people, let's say a certain group of people that live in a certain part of Alaska that are native uh, to that area yeah. for a thousand years, and they've lived well there and prospered for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years, now there is a mass exodus and immigration for whatever reason to uh, mainland USA. And you will see that generation after generation, diabetes starts popping up. So that being said, even diseases that we so deeply think of, you know, the uh, sort of way someone approaches it, you know, uh, a lay person approaches that, that is a disease that has to do with the body. And then we start discussing things like diet and exercise. Well, now you're outside the environment and diet and exercise is part of your sociocultural background. But even more than that, we see things like immigration causing disease. I'm going to give another example that's even further up uh, your alley, and it really makes a more profound point. Uh, schizophrenia. And uh, if I recall correctly, it's a study many, 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 many years ago. And somebody looked at the rate of incidence, the number of the new cases of schizophrenia of, I believe it was Ethiopian, but I'm not sure, an African country that moved to the UK. And in the first generation uh, immigrants, the rate of schizophrenia was something like two, three, four times higher than the international average. Wow. That is very profound. Yeah. And, and then, you know, it makes one ask the question, well, what were the environmental yes. factors and yes. stressors yeah. that have severely affected the incidence of this disease? Yeah. Again, I don't remember the details, which country it was. I know it was into the UK. But when you look at that, then you'll go into something like addiction, which we're trying to look at it as a, a disease model, but it's a very complex disease. Yeah. And it's obvious it has a lot to do with who you are within your sociological context. Yes. And that being the case, uh, it's only natural to make that implication that we can look at it in that way, yeah. make some yeah. uh, predictions, and hopefully by addressing this and public policy and public health issues, we can do something in the overall treatment yeah does like, that make sense I like i like i like what you're saying a lot my my training in psychology um, one of the criticisms that could be made and rightly so is it's hyper individualistic <clears throat> you know if, if you think about u.s culture there was a chinese anthropologist who came to the u.s some years ago and was tasked with studying uh, american cultural patterns and he was asked at the end of his study to define uh, if he could define u.s culture in a single phrase, single word, what would it be? And he said, you're the most self-reliant culture on the planet. And you could translate that into be individualistic, you're the most individualistic culture on the planet. So Bob Weather studies psychology. 
here in the US, well, big surprise, the psychology that I've been steeped in is very individualistic. So like, let me give an example of what runs contrary to that. About 20 years ago, I chaired a doctoral dissertation at a local university. The student, I'll mention him because I'm proud of what he did and he'd be proud to be named, Michael Wetter, did his dissertation. It was a nationwide study of, of uh, behavioral patterns in third generation survivors of the Holocaust. I was thinking of this when you mentioned Ethiopia. Third generation survivors of the Holocaust, he was one of them. So it wasn't his parents, it was his grandparents who survived the Holocaust in, in Germany. So three generations later, so he did a nationwide, so it was an authoritative study. This is not gonna be a surprise a lot of what you just cited around Ethiopia, but what he found with third generation survivors, which were his generation, is 10 times as much evidence of anxiety, depression, organic diseases, and addiction. So let's look at my background in psychology as an individualistic psychologist. I can work with Michael, well, let's say that Michael's my patient, he's coming in with addiction. If I don't take into account what it is that is probably the single biggest contributing factor is that whatever happened in Germany that got passed on to his, to his parents from his grandparents, and then to him, if, if I don't address that, and he did address this in his dissertation, if I don't address, them, address that, imagine how hamstrung the treatment would be of, of Michael's addiction, were he to be addicted. He's not, but if he were to be addicted, you can imagine if I've got this kind of myopia like this, how, how much data I'll be missing. And my background in psychology would not prepare me for that, more of a sociological or cultural anthropological perspective. Were I not interested in those independent of my psychology background, like you as a physician, with books like Emil Durkheim on your bookshelf, were we not steeped in these other perspectives, if we were just kind of standard practicing physicians and psychologists, we might well miss the most important data. Absolutely. And, and that kind of, kind of can bring us to the everyday treatment of this community that we are doing. Mm -hmm. um, whether, it's in my, uh, whether it's in the medical office with medication yeah. or things that we usually call residential treatment, IOP, PHP, these are just aftercare group counseling yeah. things. And, and if what I'm saying is true, and the society this treatment is couched in, yeah. we're actually not even addressing recovery. Recovery to what? The very thing that caused the situation in the first place? That's a little bit crazy, isn't it? Right? I don't disagree with you. That's a little bit insane. <laughs> if society is promoting if, if <clears throat> what I call corporatization of the social order, if increasing economic polarity, polarization, if hopelessness, if lack of human bonding, which Durkheim would uh, uh, agree with, if these are causing to anxiety, depression, existential angst of a whole generation, what am I treating them for to get them back to that same place where they started? And so that has been a big... Uh, uh, a question for me and a big barrier in treatment because that society that didn't give them the resources to not become addicts in the first place I'm trying to push them back into that but I have realized that what I'm trying to do is push them back into that not to participate but cope and have as productive as a life as possible with the tools they have and society allows them I love the, the critical perspective that you bring to this. Uh, as you were talking just now, I was thinking about, I, 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 uh, 42 years ago, I went back to college as a psychology major, and the first course I took 
was a personality theories course. And I so appreciate this. The professor for the course, Oren Berg, required for us to read this massive textbook on personality theories. And then he had us reading Freud and B.F. Skinner and some of the major theorists and so on. But one of the books that he required for that course was a little book by two sociologists. Uh, and they were husband and wife. I don't remember their first names, but I remember their last name. Last name, it was Putney and Putney. And the title of the book by Putney and Putney was The Adjusted American. And the subtitle of it was Normal Neuroses in American Society. And their central thesis throughout that book was that if you could summarize all the, the, the things that are normalized in our culture, they, they, said, they said their term for it coming from sociology was that we're a culture that is wedded to indirect social acceptance. That was their term. And so rather than me being okay as I am, I'll be okay if I drive your car, a car just like you, or, or wear your, your designer clothes, or I, whatever it is. And so they did this lengthy analysis of how this, that's not questioned. And so what you do, what you and I could do if we're not careful, is we can help socialize people into a society whose values they were questioning. Is that that's that's the premise of advertising? And say, exactly. Say, I was just going to point that out. So, so we going. so we, so we have to be careful because, like, what? Just in the context of addiction, what if one of the primary sources of my addiction is that some part of me does not want to go gently into the night of that normal neurosis? What a difference it would make to see somebody like you that at least questions critically uh, the the un the kind of. Uh, the uncritical just consumption of all of that versus somebody who would say, Bob, you're not adapted to society. Let's fix you. Why don't we just give me a frontal frickin' lobotomy? <laughs> I mean, you, you just opened up so many cans of worms that I want to talk about. I don't even know which one to address. I'm trying to really stay on topic, but you hit so many things and everything that you said, you know, uh, going, uh, I don't want to go gen. Well, <laughs> If I can remember, I'm, let me address them one at a time. Sure, and, sure. And we might not even get them. <laughs> one of them was this. I think we talked about the other day. Uh, we had some uh, some of the kids there. We talked about um, these are hypersensitive people. Yeah, we did talk about right? that. Yes. So the, uh, the addict that I've noticed, these are very sensitive people. And I don't mean themselves sensitive, yeah. which they are, but sensitive to reality. Yeah. And so they sort of sniff the bullshit. Yes, yes. And, and as this social order becomes uh, as we become more uh, uh, technologically advanced we are creating you know these guys don't even know how to make friends anymore because the idea of friends you're like hey that's my friend have you ever met him no i've been talking to him for five years on this thing so these things that are sort of disintegrating our sense of self uh, our sense of integrity our sense of pride having a meaningful job uh, having a meaningful potential future uh, uh, making fr whatever it is, making friends, growing up in a so complex society that you're participating in, as all the all these things are gone, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. We the question is maybe the kid doesn't want to go back into that reality, and that's a major major challenge. I and I and I don't know what to do about it uh, because I'm not sure what to tell. Let's say Joe. Okay, you know you're 22 years old. And you've been doing dope since you were 15. Yeah. You haven't really developed your frontal cortex. You have no schooling, okay? And at the most intimate and physical level, they're feeling the pain because it's not some abstract existential angst. It's like, what do you want me to do, Doc? Go work at 7-Eleven for the next 30 years? 
and barely survive in a room when I have absolutely no prospect, there's no social safety net, and I have, I have a thought here, and a thought here, and, and, and I put it out there just for us to chew on. Love what you're talking about. Love what you're talking about. Is uh, I want to bring in psychology for just a second. I'd be really interested in your response to it. I tell you, I've sat in groups with you. My eyes are tearing up because I feel so strongly about this. I so appreciate the fact that you've created an environment uh, in your treatment setting where clients can have somebody that gets this that you're talking about. And I see them respond to you. It's like at least you're not feeding them a line of, uh, of um, uh, double think or speak or whatever like that. It's, you're, you're, you're feeding them something. You're seeing things clearly. The thought I have from psychology is this. Let's take Joe. Just exactly how you described it right there. And it's painful to hear that because you and I both know plenty of examples of Joe's like this. Is that from a psychological perspective, we talk about what is it that will activate the ambitious sector within 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 an individual, and much of the research suggests is that people will respond most powerfully in terms of uh, developing the part of them that would aspire to something more than Seven Eleven. They'll respond to what we, we call mirroring, and it's a very specific thing. It's mirroring of their ambitions, and so hang with me just a second, and I want to check this out with you. Is by virtue of the fact, Doctor B that you see Joe and you see his plight and you don't ignore that, that you stay with that. In fact, you're you're pushing him to consider something more than 7-Eleven. By virtue of you doing that from a psychological perspective, you're providing him probably what our culture doesn't supply and more than likely what his family of origin didn't supply, whatever that family unit looked like. And so you're doing from a psychological perspective part of the one thing that can be done. It may not be enough because there's no magic bullet in this, but, but the fact that you're shining light on this with that kind of critical perspective, I can think of people, because I sit in groups with you, I can think of people, and you can, I, you can think of them too, we can think of some of the same individuals even right now. You can see them light up just by virtue of the fact that you've taken a radical perspective on whatever it is that recovery would be. It's not a mindless recovery that you're suggesting. It's not a cultural adaptation recovery at all. No. And I, I feel like that we can do. We can light a fire and we can both live true to it as much as we can ourselves and we can invite them to do that. You invite them to be non-compliant. And I, and I mean that in terms of the larger social culture context. And, and you see them wake up to that. They go, this is, because many of our clients have been in multiple treatment settings they ain't in Kansas no more. No. <laughs> not, not in this group. So anyway, that's a bit just just the mirroring piece of it is just like that. We can offer that, and you speak that lingo. I speak it too. I care yeah, a lot about this. Yeah, yeah. It's funny you yeah. said that uh, uh, promoting them to be non-compliant. Uh, <laughs> so subversive. And, subversive is a great word for it. And, and uh, so these kids uh, <laughs> feel that what the road they took is. Uh, there's an intuition that, you know, if you go back, let's just take heroin, and if you go back both in terms of literary, but multiple cultural things, that is the subversive to do. That is the saying, F you to the establishment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in reality, what I try to show is that it's actually not. You're actually responding to what the environment wants. But let's be subservient, yeah, you yeah, know, and yeah, let's, yeah. Let's, let's rebel against this yeah. by recognizing what's out there and and this is where I go. Hopefully, we get to this if we build, a, you know, what we're doing over there enough is providing opportunities for them to have things, uh, which I guess nowadays they call them progressives and so forth. But I've been uh, saying the same thing for thirty years. That's why I use words like co-op. 
That's why I use words to them like service to others. That's why I use words to them lend a hand because I want them to understand community, yeah. trust, yeah. and build your growth and foundation as a human being on that, not on the Gucci purse, yeah. not on the BMW or the Porsche. And hopefully we'll get there. I don't know if we will, yeah. but uh, I firmly believe. You remind me of Carl Jung when he talked about addiction. He, in the early days, he actually, ironically, or was involved in some correspondence in the early days that led to the establishment of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know what he would make of that as it currently manifests, but he's actually in the big book correspondence with Carl Jung of all people. He had a term for addiction. He referred to it as a poor form religious substitute. It just popped in my mind as I was listening to you, because if I'm addicted to heroin, I can that can be my big subversive activity, right? I, I had the echo of Jung in my mind. Jung might say, it's a poor form subversion substitute. Absolutely. Let's, let's go for the real stuff. Let's go for, let's really be subversive. Let's not, let's not opt out for something that's like an anemic version. Let's go for the jugulars. And that's what you're suggesting is for people to live radically in their lives, look, live radically uh, to values that are going to make a difference in their lives long-term. That's, that, that's the real stuff. That's not a facsimile of, of subversion. That is subversive. That is subversive. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to use what you just said uh going against establishment uh rebellion uh, by the way back in the day when we look at the, the traditions in western education to be educated and to be in college or to be a college professor meant to be self-aversive uh, to this establishment because you're supposed to question the establishment all of that is changing because we're uh, training people to go work for uh i won't use any names but to basically plug and chug whether you're at the terminal or whether you're making decisions that being said, uh, where was I going with this? Uh, we can take the, we can take that education thing. We don't need to do that right now. But just the idea the idea that that a university would be a place of of uh, free thought makes me think. And you probably have read this in Time Film by Thomas Kuhn's book, uh -huh. The Structure of Scientific. Oh, I, I studied that for yeah, about yeah, a year and yeah, a half. Yeah, huh? you and me both is he talks about normal science and having spent 15 years of my life as a tenured faculty pro professor in, in, uh, in a graduate school, and you, you have your own version of it, is that I, I, I really found the normalization of science going on, is that there's only certain questions that are worth, ask, worth asking. And by the way, I don't know why we got kicked off of YouTube, but we may be talking into it right now, because you can sort of get kicked out of a faculty for questioning normal science. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> uh, and it just brought me back to what I was uh, going at. <laughs> so, yeah. so we are talking about the social angst. We're talking about this anxiety. We're talking about these kids. Actually, uh, this is their escape. And I just thought of physicians. Nowadays, there's a lot of discussions about uh, physician burnout. When, when you're on all the doctor's websites and all the education websites and all the keep physician burnout. And it's a really silly concept and i'll tell you why it's a silly concept the very people that are promoting physician health and saying well go do this go do some yoga go do some stuff are the ones that have caused the physician burnout and here's what i mean as the profession became corporatized and we lost our professional status a professional is someone who makes their own rules and makes their own decisions and has enough edification to be able to do that Okay, well, now we work for a corporation, yeah. okay? Yeah, yeah. And everyone has to be in line. Yeah. What does that cause? Depression, yeah. anxiety, yeah. alcohol abuse, yeah. substance abuse. And then they talk about physician burnout. Well, 
residents nowadays train half the amount of time they used to train by law because oh, we used to work them too long, okay? All right, so they're working less, but there's higher burnout. It's really insane. And the burnout is when the corporations took over medicine and, uh, you know, the insurance. It's very interesting. And this is exactly the same thing let's as addiction. Go, let's go with that for just a second. Let's imagine that I'm your patient and I'm coming in with an addiction to, let's say, to heroin. I come in and, and you're an, uh, a, a, an extension of this corporatized uh, way that medicine has evolved over time. I wouldn't disagree with you. And you're on the inside for sure. Uh, the same things happen in psychology. So no, no big surprise there. So I come to see you. Imagine if you have adopted, imagine if you're running as fast as you can and you've adopted this kind of corporatized, corporatization of medicine, um, uh, hook, line, and sinker. Imagine I come in with an addiction and imagine having, imagine the probability of my having the conversation with you as my doctor that you and I are having right now in front of this camera. It wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. There'd be no opportunity for us to look at anything other than let's get Bob through as quickly as we can uh, as efficiently as possible. Let's get him to comply. We can't have him be non-compliant. Can't have him question anything. Because if you're committed to that, wouldn't you? Wouldn't it follow that you'd want me to be committed to that in my own version too? Bob, I want you to be a good, loyal 7-Eleven employee and stop taking your heroin. Da, 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 da. But there wouldn't be. There, we wouldn't have any capacity to have the perspective that you do bring, which is that you're not part of the system. You're not. You're. You're enough removed from it that you can at least challenge it. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, at the same time, now that I recall, last time I was working for a big organization, uh, the university, you're also worried about, is this guy going to go complain? Let me not. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a doctor is no law. It's basically, you know, I'm, they're consumers and I'm a product, yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, this is, there's absolutely no place in medicine for that. Yeah. Certainly you should be rude and, and not be rude and have good bedside yeah. manners. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, there's so much abuse from the consumer's part nowadays, and it's not wholly their fault, right. but the system's telling them it's your right, yeah. right? Yeah. This is, you go in and you have sniffles, and the doctor tells you, go home, you have sniffles. They will get upset and write, uh, make a complaint. He didn't give me any antibiotics. He didn't give me any medications. And he just told me it's not a big deal. Go home. Well, what are and these things have profound, deep consequences. Now, we're talking about an example you know, versus addiction. What are the consequences? I'm going to give you a medication that you don't need. And all medications have potential toxic side effects. I'm also changing your belief system from a reality, which is, there's nothing wrong with you. For the last 100,000 years, people get colds. So it's called a virus. To you need to have, come in, have something done. And what I did, even though you were going to get better anyway, caused you to get better. And so we're actually contributing to what uh, uh, Chris had just called magical thinking of the current cultural system. I call it uh, uh, Disneyland thinking and so forth. What would be an analogy? Uh, this that you're done with the sniffles or a cold to the work that you and I both do in addiction treatment. I know that you'll, you'll come up with something, but I'm just curious, uh, how, in what ways do we contribute kind of unthinkingly to perpetuation of some of this magical thinking? Would you call it a Disneyland? Disneyland? I call it Disneyland thinking. Okay. This guy, Chris, has how, just how might we unwittingly contribute to that if we don't have our eyes wide open in, in addiction treatment? Do you have any thought about that? Extensive. Number one, uh, the communication and the information that's passed on to both the, the addict and the families mm -hmm. is 
oftentimes false and it's kind of promoted by our cultural social values that are dictated by magical thinking okay uh, this is a moral failure okay that's an insane thing to uh, push on someone then from there it goes on extensively to everything from the terms we use relapse detox uh, do this sort of treatment and then you will get better all of this is false right I found myself in recent months or the time that I've known you and worked with you, Austin. Austin is producing us today. I, I found myself more and more, and I do it in the, the podcast that Austin and I do together. I'll catch myself just to make sure, and, I, and it's meant as a, as a reminder, not only to myself, but to the listeners, is that there is no magic bullet. I'll use that term once here. I want to make sure that I don't contribute to this idea that a psychological perspective or a medical perspective or a spiritual perspective or a social culture that there's that is an incredibly complex phenomenon. So please stop supporting simplistic answers to a very complex problem. I just don't want to do that. And it happens all the time. I've been really struck by that in uh, addiction recovery as I've gotten introduced to the field by immersion over the years. How much stuff is stated that that controverts scientific data is talked about all the time. Uh, you know, I, you know. I woke up this morning, I had this belief system about what cures addiction, and now that's the cure du jour. Drives me flipping crazy. It's interesting <laughs> you say that. Almost last conversation I have with every parent mm -hmm. all the time mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, they thank you, and uh, yeah. from yeah. our first meeting, I, and I reiterate this over and over. Please remember. I'm not a magician. I'm not a snake oil salesman. I make no guarantees. And I say this not because of any legal action you might take against me, but it's to reinforce on you the complexity yeah. of this disease. And we can have positive outcomes, but curb your expectations. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know how much time we got, Austin. Uh, because uh, I'm having a great time. Uh, as much as you want, we're at 30. Let, let me respond to something else. Let me respond to something else. So give me just a second. I want to get back to it. Let's see. Oh, oh. And we'll splice this in or whatever like that. I've wondered about this. As a psychologist over the years, uh, I, I was required uh, every two years to do 16 hours of training in ethics, professional ethics. So that means for decades I took ethics courses and I taught ethics courses and so on. But one of the thoughts I had sitting in in one after the other ethics seminars is is there there, there oftentimes be a citation of the Hippocratic Oath, you know, do no harm. And and I would sit there and I'd find myself questioning as soon as I'd like write down the things that we do that we're trained to do in psychology to do no harm, does anybody question the ethics of the ethics? It's like so for example, I'm gonna pick the example you just gave. So you sit with the family and you temper their expectations. And let's say that they actually get a little bit anxious or a little bit, uh, I'm not gonna say depressed, they feel some grief over the fact that this, this may not go away or this may be a long road or this may be more complicated. Have you done harm? Now I'd argue that you haven't done harm. In fact, I would argue that you do greater harm by the Disneyland thinking. But you can imagine how paranoid you can get in this field. Our, my field, your field, like that. Pretty soon you're making sure that whatever you do, you don't make anybody the least bit unhappy. Don't send them home with sniffles, Dr. B. You know, that could be a problem. Don't tell somebody the truth about addiction being a multifarious issue. And it gets really crazy to me. And I got really sick of this as, as, as a professor of psychology as well as a practicing clinical psychologist. You got to where it was CYA. You just got to where you're covering your posterior exactly. more and more often to where 
at that point, I feel like that everything you're doing is doing harm because you're not showing up professionally. Right. <laughs> so I, I do have a kind of multi-tongue answer to that. Number one, we have to separate uh, real harm, what we used to call harm, versus the magical thinking and pat on the back in the society. We discussed earlier how uh, certain uh, you know certain movements in Christianity in this country right now really uh, validate your delusional cognitive dissonance of reality. Okay, I'm not going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you everything's okay. And in that case, I would argue that this is a case where well, you need to you, you can't tell a cancer patient you're not dying, so go ahead and take that trip to the Alps and go skiing instead of taking care of your affairs. You have yeah. to at some address these yeah. issues. So am I doing harm? Uh, in general, I will say this, and I tell other patients this, and this is one of the reasons I left emergency medicine. I tell patients, the minute you walk in through the door of a medical facility, and I used to teach residents this, the minute they walk into the doors of the ER, we're doing harm, okay? And I even tell my own patients now, and I used to tell them in the ER, I used to say, look, let me give you some advice and take this in the right way. Mm -hmm. Talking to me is doing you harm. Okay? When you come in here and expose yourself to me, there is a potential for harm. Because what I'm doing, depending on what I say and the tests I get mm -hmm. and the false positives that we come up with, mm -hmm. I'm going to cause at the very least anxiety in you. Mm -hmm. And so you are right in a sense, right? Anything we do to them is harm. And that's why I would tell uh, uh, residents, please understand, get people to minimize your contact with you, especially as we've turned into a consumption society, including medical care. On the other hand, another way to answer it is, is unfortunately, we've gone way too far in, a society, in society and our culture where there's a complete disconnection from reality. And so now I would say the harm is telling the people to lie. Uh, uh, does that make sense? It makes complete sense to me. It makes me think that, that, that at one level, I can be doing good. I can be like, like a, it's like a benign tumor or something. I can be doing good. But at a deeper level, the level that we're looking at from a social critical perspective, at a deeper level, I can be doing a harm that actually is far greater than any supposed cure at this level. And so it's almost like you need to think of different levels, like a, 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 I don't know, like a meta level or something like this. And I think that conversation doesn't happen often enough in psychology. I don't presume it happens often enough in addiction um, uh, recovery. I get all kinds of mailings every day, and I'm sure that you do uh, as well. And most of them are kind of uncritically uh passed out there and assimilated by people, but there isn't this level of critique going on that we've talked about today, looking at addiction from something other than a very kind of uh, narrow tunnel vision kind of perspective. really appreciate the fact that we've opened up the aperture. I'm looking forward to more conversations with you, Dr. B. This is enlivening to me. Yeah, this should be exciting. <laughs> we should get better. We were hoping to do a live stream today. This is our first one. I'm sure we're even going to get better at it mm -hmm. uh, have other guests uh, come and join us. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're hoping this develops on its own. Those of you that do get to watch this, please let us know where you want us to go with this. And uh, I think we can wrap today up, huh, guys? It's great. It's great. Awesome. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Happy Bob. To be here. And thank you, uh, thank you everyone thank you, for Dr. watching. Thank you, Austin.